want to thank you for uh, all your prayers as um, we welcomed our second child, a daughter, into our family. Just a lot of chaos at home, <laughs> but uh, it's good chaos, if, that, if there is such a thing. Um, you know, and when things settle down, I'm going to uh, just get back to like reading and favorite hobbies and and I'm always looking for good things to read and uh, just um, hope to read more about great leaders in history. I was thinking about that. I think maybe I got the idea from Dave Mason, who said he's a big Winston Churchill fan, I think. But I was thinking, like, yeah, Winston Churchill's a good one. Right? I mean, in a BBC poll at the beginning of 21st century, he was voted the greatest Briton of all time. It's hard to minimize his leadership during World War II and his famous speeches that shaped the modern world, and there's a lot to cover from his early upbringing to his later politics, and that got me thinking, how do I get a good, quick sample of this man's legacy? Is there a biography worth my time? Well, you guys can talk to me after the service, but learning about Churchill is a task for another day. Today's task is a more urgent task of getting a grasp of David's life as we continue and getting towards the end. And reading the entirety of 1 and 2 Samuel wouldn't take too long if you wanted to do that. But if you want to just fast forward to his career as king, you would just read 2 Samuel. And as I finished my last sermon on 2 Samuel chapter 20, I just completed a large section of that book covering a large portion of David's reign. You may recall during my talk, I compared verses 23 to 26 to chapter 8, verse 15 through 18. And you'll see in those passages, so towards the end of chapter 20 and towards the end of chapter 8, that they're both lists of David's government workers. The narrator, I believe, arranges these lists as neat bookends, and between them, is a large portion of 2 Samuel, about 12 chapters of material, and a lot happens there. There's the good that David did. Remember how he sought out Mephibosheth? He showed kindness to him for his father Jonathan's sake. We'll come back to that in today's passage. Then we saw the king fight wars against foreign powers and prevail over them. But sadly, there's a lot of bad in those chapters, too. We cannot erase from memory that time David remained in Jerusalem when kings went out to battle. The narrator didn't hide the sin that David once tried to cover up. His adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah, rooted in his deeper spiritual problems, led to much trouble in his kingdom. We see his perverse and unruly sons sinning, killing, rebelling. They're opportunists rising left and right. David survived all of these ordeals, but he did not emerge unscathed. I mean, what father can stay the same after the violation of his daughter and the disgraceful death of his sons? Add to that the growing weakness of his kingdoms becoming more and more apparent. That's all there in chapters 9 through 20. 
Yet despite all his faults, here's an ideal ruler. Shepherding Israel according to the integrity of his heart, guiding them by the skillfulness of his hands. Now I'm sure that there's much more material that could have been included to stretch out 2 Samuel, many more chapters. But from chapters 21 to 24, we're given something like an epilogue to wrap up the story of David and his kingdom. This epilogue's an important part in content and in structure, and I'll make comment about both. Content-wise, it captures the essence of David's leadership well. I also think there's a deliberate structure in the arrangement of its parts. So Todd Beal talked about this when he preached on 2 Samuel 22. Um, What's called a chiasm, if you remember. This is when words or concepts are repeated in reverse order. The results like a mirror image, or if you like words like palindromes, or an ascending and descending music scale. So the parts can be arranged in A, B, C, C prime, B prime, A prime pattern, and that is precisely what we have here in chapters 21 to 24. So here's how one commentator sees the arrangement of the events. First, at the front portion of chapter 21, and at the end of chapter 24, there are national crises. Israel suffers from the mistakes of their king whether it's the former king Saul or the current king David. Now, David does not sit idle, but addresses the problems. The result in both instances is the same. You look at chapter 21, verse 14, and chapter 24, verse 25, you'll see that God or Yahweh heeded the prayer for the land. Same exact phrase in the original language in both places. So that's A and A prime, if you're following me. On to B and B prime. In the second half of today's passage, chapter 21, and in the second half of chapter 23, you'll find the great accomplishments of David's warriors. They resemble something like a military honor rolls with anecdotes. And then finally, we have C and C prime, the center of the chiasm. There are two poems, the longer one occupying the entirety of chapter 22 and the shorter one in chapter 23, verses 1 to 7. These devotional writings of David reveal his heart of faith in God. So last time, Dr. Beal covered much of this large middle portion in his sermon on chapter 22. That was two weeks ago. Today I'm backtracking to chapter 21. With all this in mind, let's dive into 2 Samuel 21, and I'll talk more about that chapter after reading it. 2 Samuel chapter 21. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, 
The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, We will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, Whatever you say, I will do for you. Then they answered the king, As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us. We will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, and five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholathite, and he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they all fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest. Now Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock, from the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. And David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done. Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from the men of Jabesh Gilead who had stolen them from the streets of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them up after the Philistines had struck down Saul and Gilboa. So he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all that the king commanded, and after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. When the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. Then Ishbi Benoth, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out. You shall go out no more uh, with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Now it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibekai, the Hushatite, killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. Again, there was war at Gob with Philistines, where Elhanan, the son of Jareh, Oregim, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again, there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature, who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was born to the giant. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, killed him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Happy Thanksgiving. (laughs) Perfect passage, right? Well, that's what happens when you commit to expository preaching. Um. Well, it's easy to see how verses 1 to 14 and verses 15 to 22 form uh, two parts of the chiasm. 
in chapters 21 to 24. So that's parts A and B, respectively. There's a lamentable national crisis, that's A, followed by commendable military feats, that's B. The crisis begins and ends with prayer as David first inquires of the Lord in verse 1. Then God heeds the prayer for the land in verse 14. Also in verses 15 and verse 22, you see in each verse a mention of David and his servants. Now I'd argue that you can proceed to divide up verses 1 to 14 further so that verses 1 to 9 form a subunit, while verses 10 to 14 form another. At the joint or as hinge is the phrase, the beginning of the harvest, which you'll find in both verse 9 and verse 10. As a result, you have two key time frames, a longer period of years from the start of the famine, and then the three years pass until in one particular year, there's the beginning of the barley harvest, which is late March, early April in the calendar. And then, too, a shorter period of days in the same season until, as it says in verse 10, the late rains poured on them from heaven. So with all that in mind, structurally speaking, we have verses 1 to 9, and then verses 10 to 14, and verses 15 to 22. Now, content-wise, I observe three light principles. One, in times of suffering, prayerfully consider unaddressed sin. In times of suffering, prayerfully consider unaddressed sin. That's verses 1 to 9. Two, in times of waiting, dutifully honor your obligations. In times of waiting, dutifully honor your obligations. That's verses 10 to 14. And three, in times of frailty, humbly empower kingdom workers. In times of frailty, humbly empower kingdom workers. First, in times of suffering, prayerfully consider unaddressed sin. And I'm going to spend the most time on this point. So verses 1 to 9 confront us with all sorts of problems, questions, and moral issues. To begin, can we really link every instance of suffering with every specific act of sin? I don't doubt God can do that. In his infinite wisdom and omniscience. But that's beyond my pay grade and yours too. The last thing I want to do is end up associated with Pat Robertson, who linked Hurricane Katrina with legalized abortion in America. Of course, I'm against legalized abortion, but I don't know if I can specifically link that to a natural disaster. Now, it is a bit different in the theocratic Israel in the Old Testament. Unlike U.S., ancient Israel did have true prophets and revelation to make these kinds of connections clearer at times. 
In his parting words of Deuteronomy 28, Moses warned his people that disobedience against the Lord will bring a curse on the land, the land given to Israel as inheritance. That curse includes drought, leading to famine, devastating an agricultural society that's heavily dependent on rain. So David, looking at this as king, wisely waited to make sure what's happening was not just a fluke, an aberration, or an outlier of a bad year. Once he saw that the famine lasted year after year for three years, he turns to inquire of the Lord. This is, I see, David at his best, seeking God in prayer. It turns out in these times of suffering, there was a grave, unaddressed sin to consider. God made it quite plain. It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. Now, we've discussed Gibeon already, a city only a few miles from Jerusalem. It's the setting of some major events in 2 Samuel. Remember the showdown at the field of sharp swords in chapter 2. Later, there's a large stone where Amasa fell in chapter 20. But today the focus is on the inhabitants of the city, the Gibeonites themselves. The descent, these are descendants of Canaan, and they managed to secure God's protection. So you have to go back to Joshua. And during the conquest, the Gibeonites saw how Israel had just defeated the neighboring cities of Jericho and Ai. They knew the Lord had commanded his people to destroy all the inhabitants of the land. So in order to save themselves, it says in Joshua 9, 3-6, that they went and pretended to be ambassadors from a distant land. The pretense worked. The covenant made before God guaranteed their safety from Israel. That's how the Gibeonites survived the conquest and lived among the Israelites through the period of the judges, But then the monarchy begins, and the first king of Israel broke that covenant. Saul adds to his resume resume of shame. And we shouldn't be surprised, though, that Saul was capable of doing such a thing. Saul's a tragic and disobedient figure. God said to him in 1 Samuel 15, Go kill the Amalekites, and Saul spared them. The Israelites swore by the Lord to spare the Gibeonites, and Saul killed them. At best, this is patriotism without biblicism. Even if there's some zeal for God in Saul, it's not according to knowledge. He skipped, ignored, or forgotten his own nation's history and the scriptures. Now that David... The second king of Israel is left to clean up Saul's mess. The land is left with dire needs. There's a need for atonement. We read in Numbers 35, 33, You shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. There's a need for a blessing. Israel broke the law of Moses, who said, Love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Cursed is the one who perverts the justice to the stranger. That's Deuteronomy 10 and 10:19 and 
Justice cannot be met by money or any indiscriminate killing in Israel. There must be a deliberate and specific punishment of those responsible for the crime. Some might be appalled at the demand of the Gibeonites for the seven descendants of Saul in verses 5 to 6. But we need to take a careful look at the context of the passage. That may lead us to reassess our assumptions. And I'd make three observations here. First, we should slow down and realize that Saul wasn't alone in this covenant-breaking genocide. The Lord revealed in the second half of verse 1, we read earlier, it is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites, don't miss it, and his bloodthirsty house. This campaign against Gibeon was a family affair. Saul led the effort, but his sons and grandson must have followed. That raises other questions such as the extent of Jonathan's involvement, which but what's unquestionable is the involvement of at least some of Saul's descendants. So don't assume that those about to be executed were wholly innocent. Secondly, the execution of the seven is relatively mild compared to what Saul had plotted to do. I see some interesting parallels in the book of Esther. Like Haman, the enemy of the Jews, Saul had plotted to wipe out a people group under divine protection. Haman was hung and his ten sons as well as a public deterrence against further evil. Likewise, the exchange of the few, seven guilty men, to end the suffering of many innocents and entire nation is something a responsible and righteous king simply cannot pass up. And thirdly, quickly, I remind you that in verse 14, this plan of execution worked as God heeded the prayer for the land. Onward, verses 7 to 9, tell us how that plan was carried out. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan's exempt as the beneficiary of the covenant between his father and David. Keep in mind, there's another man with the same name. So there's two Mephibosheths in today's passage. Included in the kill is not Jonathan's son, but Jonathan's half-brother. This doomed and condemned Mephibosheth and his brother Armoni are illegitimate sons of Saul. That's two out of seven descendants. And David's going to have to reach into the third generation for five more. So we turn to, from the sons of Saul's concubine to the sons of Saul's daughter. Now, there's some debate among the scholars about verse 8 concerning the original language there. You may see like a footnote or something like that. We're told back in 1 Samuel 18, 19 that Mirab, Saul's older daughter, married Adriel. Also, we read later in 2 Samuel 6, 23 that Michal, Saul's younger daughter and David's wife, died childless for opposing her husband. One could try to argue that Michal became like an adoptive mother to Merab's children. But the problem is that word brought up in verse 8 is the same word in the original language behind board 2 applied to Saul's concubine in the same verse. I know this is a little bit deep, but the best solution is to look at the scribal sources of the text. There are ancient manuscripts, two of them Hebrew, that has Merab instead of Michal there. I think the Merab 
reading is the correct reading. And I think the translators of New American Standard Bible, NIV, and ESP, English Standard Version, I think they're correct to favor Merab there. Either way, uh, we know that two sons plus five grandsons add up to seven descendants of Saul. They're gathered up, delivered to the Gibeonites who execute them in Gibeah, Saul's hometown. As promised, they were hung before the Lord to demonstrate justice, to reconcile the Israelites with the Gibeonites, and to secure blessings for the land. It was an unforgettable event, but not everything's resolved in a day as there's another lesson in store for David. So if verses 1 to 9 instruct us to prayerfully consider unaddressed sin in times of suffering, I think verses 10 to 14 teach us to dutifully honor your obligations in times of waiting. As I said earlier, the beginning of the barley harvest and the latter rain occur in the same season. So it will not be too long before God answers the prayers of his people. We're not, giving ins- we're not given insight into the emotional turmoil of Rizpah. I just can't imagine how she felt. A mother who had to watch her sons die for justice and hang in shame. She has hopes that they'll get a proper burial once God blesses the land. Until then, she's dutiful to preserve the bodies of Saul's descendants from scavengers. David's inspired by the example of this devoted mother. He actually honored the dead as well. Now, the sight of the dishonorable hangings must have given the king flashbacks of what happened at the end of 1 Samuel, chapter 31. You can read that later, and there's a short summary here in 2 Samuel 21, 12 as well. Quick recap, the valiant men of Jabesh Gilead honored Saul's memory. That's because uh, of Saul's brave defense of their city against the Ammonites that was early in his reign in 1 Samuel chapter 11. They buried Saul and Jonathan under a tamarisk tree in their city, and that's the last time we heard of their gravesite. Now waiting for the rain to fall from heaven, David gets busy on earth. He unearths the bones of Saul and Jonathan. He gathers them up with the remains of the recently deceased. He buries them in their family tomb, in their scribal land. And this, the king's show of respect for the dead after the blood payment leads to God's answer prayer in verse 14. Now let's pause here for some applications. Verses 1 to 14 together form a difficult passage. I think you would agree with that. But even in such accounts, there's always something for us to consider for our own living. First, I have some questions for fellow Christians. Have you asked yourselves, as I asked myself, is there some major issue with the Lord and others that I must address? Or to borrow from that common prayer, have I left undone those things which I ought to have done? Is there some sin problem at home, at work, or even at church that's been put on the back burner? 
And then for non-Christians, I offer this warning. Like Saul and his house, there are many who think they can get away with sin. One may try to conceal it from others. Some try to run away from their past mistakes altogether. That's no way to live. And it's a sure way to go to hell. The Bible tells us there's nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. It's only a matter of time. Before God, the all-knowing judge of all mankind, there's no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This should terrify us. This should terrify you if you do not have a saving relationship with Jesus. The fact is, we're no better than Saul and his bloodthirsty house. We're no better than murderers when we are angry without cause, insult someone in fury, hate in our hearts. We fail to abstain and flee from sexual immorality. By lusting, we've already committed adultery in our hearts. We've broken God's laws, and so we're under a curse. We must hang in shame. But we have a Savior, God who became flesh. There's an atonement through him, better than the one in today's passage. The Son of God did no wrong as the sons of Saul did. Yet Jesus went willingly to die in our place on the cross. There Christ, the Son of the blessed, redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It is only through the sinless God-man Jesus, his name, his blood, that there's forgiveness of sins. Consider how wonderful that is. Sure, the deaths of the seven in 2 Samuel 21 had its effect. The famine stopped. But far greater is the death of one Savior. It stops the fires of judgment. It brings forth the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. Jesus rose from the grave after his sacrifice, ascended to heaven, and someday he'll return to judge all mankind. Until then, there's still plenty, enough grace and righteousness available for you as well. Come to Christ Jesus. Find freedom in the gospel. Enjoy life evermore. God's grace is what Abraham found apart from his works. It's what David describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, even as David enjoyed assurance of going to heaven, he had to constantly struggle with evil on earth, both within the kingdom and against outside forces. He wasn't home yet. So all the while, he had to face his own mortality. But the work of the kingdom must go on. 
It was time for him to learn this. In times of frailty, humbly empower kingdom workers. I won't be long on this point. The unifying message of verses 15 to 22 is about how four men of Israel stepped up to defeat four men of Philistia. On David's side are those relatively close to him. Two of four are relatives, the king's nephews, Abishai and Jonathan. Going from closest to closer, there was Elhanan. He's the son of a neighbor from Bethlehem, David's hometown. Moving from closer to close, still within tribal boundaries of Judah, there's Sibekai, probably the same guy as Mebunai in a later list. On the Philistine side, they have, therefore, close to Goliath. With them are what appears to be every strategic advantage. There's genetic advantage. As it turns out, Goliath's not the only big guy, giant in their army. Now, Ishbi Beno may not be as strong or as tall. He's carrying a spear that's only half the weight of his predecessor at about 7.5 pounds. But he does have a weapon, a new weapon of some kind. Note that the word sword is in italics. That's at the discretion of the translators, and it could be any weapon, really. And that's the Philistines' technological advantage. With it, Ishvi Benob targeted the king and got close to ending him when he grew faint. That's when Abishai came to the rescue. Now, that was too close for comfort for uh, David's men, so his men forced him into retirement, as it seems, as his role as rulers, too important to be vacant. David's men took care of the other giants. Uh, that includes imposing figures like Saph or Sippai. There's Labmi, the brother of Goliath, who fought Israel at Gob, evidently somewhere near Gezer. Lastly, there's this unnamed man of great stature with extra finger on each hand and extra toe on each foot. It's a genetic condition called palydactyly. My wife helped me with that one. Whatever his name was, uh, he quickly joins the ranks of the dead. The main point here is this. So even as he grows frail, David still accomplishes great things because he humbly empowers kingdom workers. But it's not as if he has a choice. He's, a, he's not going to live forever. And we know he's now both dead and buried But when we think about our kingdom, the one that we belong to, we can praise God that the kingdom of our Lord Jesus and Savior is everlasting. So that last application that I want to give is that of worship and thanksgiving. I hope you can join us later today as we continue with that. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so he shall reign forever and ever. So we have reason to give thanks and praise forever. So all glory be to Christ our King. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we see just the imperfections of earthly kingdoms. 
Lord, just the consequences of sin wreaking havoc even on innocent lives. Lord, we moan and we groan and we're sorrowful as we think about just um, all the painful things that are taking place or under imperfect rulers, even corrupt ones. But Lord, we're thankful that you are good and your kingdom will last forever. And we await the establishment of the kingdom under your son's rule. And until then, help us, Lord, to live as lights, to expose the evil in this world, to intercede for our nation, to intercede for our families, to intercede for our state, our city, and Lord, to, to point dying people to the living Savior. In Christ's name we pray, amen.